Okay, if I could get your attention, we'll get this thing going. Yeah, Mark chapter 6, uh, pick it up in verse uh, 7. And uh, this is our sixth lesson out of ten, if you're keeping track, in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we keep running into these Pharisees, these, uh, these religious leaders who are so strict and legalistic. And uh, they kind of remind me of the library cop in the, this episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> I saw that and I thought, I think I probably have some library books from 1971. I don't know. All right, we're in Mark chapter 6. If you have been keeping up, in Mark 5, you had the two miracles that were intertwined. And uh, Jesus actually raises a guy's daughter from the dead. So, I mean, incredible miracles. And he's getting unbelievable crowds and attention, as you can imagine, when the stories are going out. And so in verse 7 of chapter 6, he summons the 12, and he's going to extend his ministry by sending these guys out. And I think it's a kind of a combination of uh, extending his ministry, but also... Uh, he knows that when he's gone, which won't be too much longer, when he's gone, it's going to be up to the 12 to take the gospel to the world. They're going to get the Great Commission. They're going to have to go on all these mission trips. And he wants to, them to get a taste of it here and get an uh, idea of how he wants them to go out. And when they go out, uh, they need to depend on God for a place to stay and for food to eat and uh, etc., and also to get used to rejection, I think. Some people are going to receive them, and some people are going to reject them, and he wants them to know that before he leaves, and so he gives them experience in that. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and he was giving them authority over unclean spirits. So he gave them a message, and he gave them some uh, godly power uh, to do some miracles, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt. He wanted them to completely depend on the Lord, to live by faith, to provide for their needs on these trips. But to wear sandals, and he said, do not put on two tunics. You know, again, uh, wants them to trust God for everything. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, Stay there until you leave the room, until you leave the town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Uh, just a metaphorical sign that you, they have rejected the word of God and judgment is coming upon them. And so the twelve went out and they preached that men should repent. That was their message. Why would that be the gist of their message? Because to receive a Savior, to receive Jesus as your Savior, you need to confess your sins and repent of it, right? You need to change your mind from a works-based religion to a Savior-based religion, which is what the New Covenant is what Jesus came to offer is. The grace of God is that Savior-based religion that Jesus is going to actually do the work necessary for them to be saved, thus he's a savior, right? Uh, but if they re if they reject, 
then that's on them, is what he's saying. Um, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil, so they were helping a lot of people and doing a lot of uh, uh, powerful uh, miracles in Christ's name. So Jesus invested his authority to preach the word of God and to do the works of God that he had been doing. And by this, he hoped that they would learn to live by faith because they took nothing with them. They would learn self-sacrifice and commitment. And again, the reality of rejection. They were going to be rejected by some people and they just needed to know that. Now in verse 14 through 29, I won't spend too much time in this story because you know the story. It's one of those stories that they told you when you were a kid about John the Baptist and Herod. And uh, John the Baptist, if you remember, the way he preached was in your face ministry. You know, that's the name of his ministry, in your face. He would literally have you stand up and then tell the whole crowd about your sin and just, you know, crush you. Uh, and uh, he did this with Herod. Herod had taken his brother's wife, <laughs> and so uh, he was guilty of adultery and incest. And uh, most people were afraid to even bring that up because Herod had power to have him executed. He was the governor of the Galilean area where they were. But John the Baptist just went right after him and uh, preached against, you know, what he was doing and told him he needed to confess and repent. And, of course, John the Baptist was arrested because Herod, you know, couldn't, had to protect his office. And there were people running around out there uh, saying things about him. So he, he threw him in the dungeon. He actually liked John the Baptist, and he knew that he was a prophet, but he just couldn't have him out there saying the things he was saying, but he didn't want to hurt him or kill him. And then you know the great story about on his uh, birthday, uh, his wife's daughter, who was some uh, young siren, was out dancing. And uh, all about when you read this, I'm sure all the men in the audience are envisioning what she looked like or what kind of dance she was doing. But it was uh, obviously very seductive. It was so seductive that uh, I think King Herod kind of did a proposition, you know, uh, if you'll do this or that, then I'll give you anything you ask for. And her mother coached her to ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so uh, much as he, as distasteful as this was to him, uh, and as much as he liked John, you know, he had promised in front of all these people, and so he delivered. His, he sent his soldiers out cut off his head, and he brought it back on a platter and gave it to um, the daughter. So this story, I think, is sandwiched in because it casts a shadow of death over Jesus' ministry. Let's them know, you know, this is going to meet with much resistance from the religious leaders, and eventually, you know, we're all going to meet this fate. They're all going to be martyrs. Because there's going to be so much rejection by the leadership wherever they go. And so it's sandwiched in here uh, between his disciples uh, having a ministry and then coming back. And Jesus uh, is going to give them a series of tests of faith. 
He's going to do the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water in today's lesson, primarily as a test of faith for his own disciples. Um, and so he puts this story in where it is to, uh, you know, impact them uh, as far as the uh, leadership of the country is going to, are going to be against them. So you pick it up in verse 30, and this is the famous uh, miracle it's in all four Gospels, and that's, what, that's probably why it's so well known. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Matthew's account, uh, Mark's account today, I'll say there were 5,000 men. Matthew's account says there were 5,000 men besides women and children. And so if you put a factor in for women and children, let's say three women and children for each man, uh, you had 20,000 people. So it was a huge, huge crowd uh, for that area uh, or for any area to have 20,000 people uh, come to hear one guy uh, who was wandering around the top of the Sea of Galilee. Can we get that map that we had just to show you where, where we are? Uh, you can see in a bigger map of the Sea of Galilee, uh, they would have been up there uh, in Capernaum to start the story. And then they cross the very north side. They go out on the boat up there on the very north side of the Sea of Galilee and go over to that area of Chorazin and Bethsaida. And uh, that place over there is uh, completely devoid of water. And so there's no cities over there. There's very little agriculture or anything going on over there. Even to this day, when you drive through there, it's just kind of a barren area. And so Jesus uh, told his disciples to get in the boat, and they crossed over across the north side of the lake. Uh, and you can see it wouldn't have been that far. And the crowds are going to, you know, walk around or run around to meet them. And when you're there in the Sea of Galilee, because uh, the sea itself is about 600 feet below sea level, and the land rises up all around it, so you can see all the way across the lake. And so they saw where Jesus was going in the boat in today's story, and they run around uh, the north side of the lake to meet him over there in that area of Bethsaida. Um, and so when they get out of the boat, the crowd is already forming right off the bat, and it's going to be in the afternoon. All right? So um, we read in verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him. So you have a debriefing here. Tell me all about everything you did and, and people's response and where you stayed and the whole deal. A debriefing of their missionary trip, you, you, you could say. Uh, and he can tell they're all tired. They've been working hard. Jesus has been, you know, in the midst of all these crowds teaching and doing miracles. Everybody's tired. And so he says to them, come away by yourself to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going. They did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Uh, I, I call this lonely place the crowded lonely place. Because <laughs> it's a lonely place, but it's getting ready to be really crowded with 20,000 people. I also uh, call this miracle... Uh, did, can y'all guess what, what you used to think uh, McDonald's was the first fast food restaurant? 
But after today's miracle, where do you think the first fast food restaurant was? In Bethsaida. You know, he's going to create meal for 20,000 people just like that. Incredible miracle. And when you compare uh, uh, Jesus, uh, which they're going to do, especially in John's account, they, they liken Jesus to Moses. And they say, uh, you know, Moses predicted a prophet would come just like him, and it would be the Messiah. He said it would be the last and greatest prophet and uh, better than him and would actually, we would be judged by his words in a, in a final sense. Um, can, can we get that Deuteronomy 18 up there? There you go. Uh, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. This is God speaking to Moses, so be like Moses. You know, Moses uh, got bread from heaven. Jesus is going to feed them bread. Uh, so they're, they're going to get the picture. They're going to put two and two together. Uh, I will put my words, the word of God, in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whether uh, whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it, or I will judge them for whether they receive uh, this prophet's words or not. And, of course, that's speaking of Jesus, and that's basically exactly what happened, of course. He was a prophet like Moses in the sense that he did miracles, he provided for the people, he spoke the word of God. Um, and so they see Jesus and they go, this, that's who this is, this is the Messiah. They're going to get really excited about it. Um, so when Jesus, uh, they, the people, look at verse 33, the people saw them going, Many recognized them, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities. So they looked across the sea, saw where they were headed, where they were going to come to shore, and uh, the word spread, and all the people descended upon them in that previous lonely place over there. And the people saw them going. Many recognized them. They ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore... He saw this great multitude, and he felt compassion for them. Now, I want you to look at why he felt compassion. Was it because they were hungry? Was it because they need, a lot of people needed to be healed? No. Look, look at this. They felt compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, and so... Many times in the scriptures, Jesus and all the, and the prophets as well would liken people, the whole human race, to sheep and liken God and then also Jesus as a good shepherd. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd that God has sent uh, and I call my sheep, you know, so Jesus called himself a shepherd and called the people shepherd and he sees the people there. Uh, and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep are completely dependent for everything. They're the most helpless animal. Uh, and without a, a shepherd, they'll, they'll be lost, they'll starve, they're thirsty, they're desperate. And, and these people, you know, they, they have questions, but they have no answers. They're distressed, but they have no relief. They feel guilt because they're under this oppressive legalist, this legalistic system that they live under 
but they got no deliverance. They have tears, but no consolation, sin, but no forgiveness. They are like sheep without a shepherd because they have no leadership. And it's not from a, a lack of priests, I can tell you. We know that they had 20,000 priests in Jerusalem. They had so many priests that they had to, do it, they had to work in shifts. <laughs> uh, they had way too many. So it's not the numbers, it's, it's the quality of the leadership. And they were not doing their job to serve the people. And so Jesus looked at the crowds. And keep in mind that Israel, the Jews themselves, had been under Gentile domination for 700 years. Six or 700 years. Think about that. They had not had their own country and their own leadership they had uh, had Gentile rulers for a long time. And, of course, all the prophets said that he was gonna, God was going to raise up a Messiah to deliver them. And they saw him, Jesus, as a deliverer, just as they saw Moses as a deliverer who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. They saw the coming Messiah would deliver them from these Gentiles. And they were really looking for a political military leader. And you'll see that at the end of today's uh, first miracle. Uh, so he saw the sheep and he felt compassion for them. Uh, you know, sheep, they really are the perfect uh, metaphor for human race because they're dependent for everything. They're dependent on the shepherd for everything as we are dependent on our maker, the Lord God, for everything. Uh, have, have you ever um, have you ever been to the sheep fights? Ever been to um, huh? How about the sheep races? Uh, can you train sheep? Have you ever seen any circus sheep? No. So they're pitiful. They can't fight and they can't run away. Uh, and that's why Jesus uses this metaphor that we're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began, you know, positioning them and himself to teach them many things, to teach them all that they need. That's what they needed. These sheep without a shepherd, they needed the truth. They needed the truth from God. They were get, not getting it from the priests that they had in those days. Uh, it was in the afternoon, quite late. His disciples saw this massive crowd. And when it started, the sun was starting to go down, you know. Uh, they came up to Jesus and says, hey, we got a problem here. This is a desolate place. There is nothing to eat up here. And these people are going to get really hungry, and they're going to be looking for a place to sleep. We need to disperse them and send them back right now. So Jesus saw this as a teaching opportunity for his disciples. That's just about everything was. And so Jesus says, after they come to Jesus and say, this place is desolate and it's already quite late, send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And so Jesus says, you give them something to eat. You take care of their needs. And that sets up the story uh, this is the purpose statement kind of. I want you to serve these people. This is all going to be uh, preparatory. He's preparing the disciples for their eventual ministry. They're going to go out 
the Great Commission, you know, go to all the world and share the gospel and meet people's spiritual needs. And this is kind of a uh, training tool right here, what he's going to do. You meet their needs. I'm giving you that stewardship. And so immediately they go, well, let's see. Uh, there's no place to get any food. And if there was, we have no money. It would cost, you know, who knows how much money to feed all these people. We, don't, we, we can't do it. It can't be done. You know, that's like if, if I told this group, okay, um, I've got a word from God, and this group here is going to go and take the gospel out to the whole world. We're sending this table to China and this one to Tibet, and, the, you know, and you'd go, that can't be done. I, I, I can't, you know, there's no way. I, uh, I've got a, you know, a bad heart. I can't climb the mountain of Tibet. You, you'll need to get, you know, we'd say you can't do it, right? And he's going to teach them that you can do it. Why can you do it? Yeah, you've got limitations. You've got all these problems and issues and duties and stuff. But it's not up to you. If God is sending you, he's with you. And that's what he's going to show his disciples. No, you can't feed them, but you're with me. You're with me. And when you're with me, we're going to feed these guys. It's going to happen. That, that's the idea here. So he says, you give them something to eat, and they protest. And Jesus says, well, surely somebody's got something. What have you got? Uh, look around. And, and so they come back and say, well, we went everywhere, and all we could put together were five loaves of bread and two fish. And Matt, uh, let me see, uh, John's account says they got it from some kid, some little boy, which I think is really important. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's all they had. Those were the actual fish. <laughs> and the bread. <laughs> so you can see this is going to be some miracle, right? Uh, and so as much as they protest, and I don't know how we're going to get this done, I, you know, I don't feel able to do it. Jesus is saying, yeah, you can do it. And it's going to come down to Jesus is going to basically teach them uh, this has to do with the Great Commission and the stewardship that really God gives all of us. Where do we go? Who do we go to to get what we need to meet the needs of the people God's given you? Everybody here has got people that depend on them in some way or form. You've got family, you've got friends, you've got relationships of all kinds, and God has put you in a place to have uh, these relationships that actually influence people, actually draw people to Christ. So where do you go? To who do you get what you need to meet the needs of the people that God's given you? We'll answer that question in just a minute. You'll see the answer played out here. All right? Uh, the disciples are still amazed at what the heck's going on. I mean, all we found is these five loaves and two bread. And he commanded all the people to recline in groups of 50. Everybody get together and make up groups of 50. Now, here's the next question the disciples probably have, and Jesus is going to accomplish, is distribution. You know, one of the problems they have 
with these flood victims, I remember particularly in Puerto Rico, we just sent all kinds of food and fresh water and medicine and everything to Puerto Rico. But the reason they couldn't get it was they had a distribution problem. They couldn't get the stuff to the people. And just think, Jesus and, and his disciples are getting there. If they had a big pile of food there, how could they distribute it to all those people? 20,000 people. How in the world are 12 disciples going to, after Jesus goes to heaven, how are these 12 guys going to take the gospel to the whole world? Distribution seems to be a big problem, right? So Jesus has these people together in groups of 50. And he's going to send his disciples. He's going to have 12 baskets. So each of the disciples got the big basket. Jesus is going to create the loaves and the fish, fill the baskets, and then send them out. And they're going to go to each of these groups of 50 and take baskets. Let's do the math real quick. I know you're pretty sharp and you'll put this together pretty fast. All right? Uh, there's 20,000 people, right? Um, groups of 50. So you're going to divide 20,000 by 50. That's 400. You got 12 disciples to go to 400 groups. That's 33 times. Each disciple will have to go back and forth from Jesus to the groups 33 times. Back and forth. They go back and Jesus fills up their basket. And then they go back to the, another group. How long do you think it would take you to figure out the answer to that question? Where do you go? To whom do you get the resources that you need to meet the needs of the people that God's given you? Jesus yeah. When Jesus is with you, you can do anything that you're called to do. And that's why we live by faith. That's why faith is so important. And the little boy, uh, I think, you know, he's a big part of this. It really builds the drama in a way. You know, makes it even seem more impossible. You know, they, they had even less because all they had was what this little kid had. I imagine uh, this kid, I'm pretty sure his name was Little Jimmy. And Little Jimmy was at home and he heard about this awesome event. And he says, all the kids are going, Mom. She says, okay, but fine, but I'm going to pack you a lunch. Oh, no, Mom, just give me some money. Give me some denarius so I can buy it like all the other kids. No, little Jimmy, I'm packing your lunch in this Roy Rogers lunchbox, and you take it. The little Jimmy gets there, and he's the only one that's got any food. Thank goodness for the mother. So when they bring that to Jesus, they presuppose there's nothing you can do with this. But look. When you take a basketball, go home and look at a basketball tonight, when that's in your hands, it means nothing. Or maybe you take a golf club and you feel the grip. In your hands, it doesn't really mean that much because nobody in here, out and looking around, nobody in here can break 100. <laughs> but you put that basketball in Michael Jordan's hands, seven NBA titles. You put that golf club you know, in Jack Nicholas's hand, 18 major championships. You put the five loaves and the two fish in Jesus' hands, 
and it feeds 20,000 people. It's all about whose hands we put ourselves in, right? Verse 40, they reclined in companies of hundreds and fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept, it was a continuous operation, they came back and forth. He never moved, but the disciples went back and forth. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the groups of 50. And Jesus divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. How big a miracle was this? How much did he create? Was there enough for everybody? The next line. They picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also the fish. After they fed everybody to their full, the baskets were still full. An abundance of supply because Jesus was the one in control. All right? Uh, now, in John's account, uh, remember this is the miracle that's in all four Gospels. In John's account, he adds the details. When the people saw this, they knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of that Deuteronomy 18 passage. And so they came to Jesus, it says, to make him king. We found the Messiah. Again, political military concept of the Messiah. We'll make him king, and we will run these Romans out of here, out here, out of here, and we'll take over and set up the kingdom of God. And Jesus, knowing what they were about and, and what they wanted from him, he left them. He commanded them to go back to the other side where they lived, and he left and went up on the mountain. Now, if you're one of the disciples, if we're one of the disciples, I know I'm thinking, you know, timing is everything, and this is a great time for us to get acclamation and pats on the back and attaboys and the adoration of the crowd, and we'll do a fundraiser. This is, if this isn't a better time to do a fundraiser, I haven't seen one. We'll fill up all the treasury, you know. But Jesus knows better, and he, he orders them. They don't want to go. He, he literally orders them to get in the boat and go back up to the side, and Jesus goes up on the mountain. Jesus goes to pray. Why, why do you think he does that alone, to pray? Remember, Jesus is 100% human being as well as 100% God. The human nature of him would be just like you and I. We want the adoration. We want the attaboys. We want the pats on the back. And the very offer to make me king, that's going to be hard to turn down. Right? So he goes up to pray, to resist the temptation that he feels. Of course, he's sinless, and so he never failed the temptation because his nature of God that he had was so powerful to overcome any of his uh, physical temptations that he had. But he went up to pray, and he sent the disciples out in the boat in the lake and told them he'd meet them on the other side, okay? So that sets up the next miracle. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made 
his disciples, ordered them to get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the multitude away. Now remember, this was about sundown when this occurred. So about 6 p.m., he sends them back out. He goes up on the mountain. And again, if you remember, uh, wherever you are, especially on the high ground, you can see all the way across the lake. You can see everything out on the lake. So Jesus is up on the mountain looking down at these guys as they're rowing back to the other side. And my question is this. Uh, the disciples probably thought they needed all the adoration of the crowd and they needed the money that the crowd might have given them. That's what they thought they needed. But maybe it's possible that Jesus thought the best thing for these guys would be to send them out into a storm. Send them out into a storm. Look ahead at verse 52. 52 verse 52 tells you why he sent them out. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So they'd, they'd been tested. Uh, he'd given them a lesson, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it yet. So what happens when you fail a test? Retest. And so he's going to give them a series of lessons and tests on faith. This is just the beginning here, see? And so he knew that they didn't need the adoration and the money and the pats on the back and the attaboys. What they needed was a good storm. And so he sends them out on the lake. And after they get a little bit out there, they notice, man, this is a pretty strong headwind. And they row and row and row, and finally, uh, they're only about halfway, and it's about 3 a.m. They've been out there rowing against the wind for nine hours. And Jesus is up on the mountain watching them, looking down at them. Look at verse 47. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch, that's 3 a.m., fourth watch of the night, he came to them. So he waits until what he considers the opportune moment. Now, when I think about their condition out there, have you ever rowed for nine hours against the wind? I think I rode about 30 minutes one time and thought I was, my shoulders were going to fall off. These guys been out there for nine hours. They're dead tired, begging for mercy. Then a storm comes up. Now they're really in trouble, scared to death. Jesus says, now's the time for me to come. And they really represent the human condition, a whirlwind of futile activity, rowing furiously against the wind, but getting nowhere and blind to the God who calls them. That's the human race, right? The human race, you know, they're on a treadmill, and they're going, and they're not going anywhere, you know? Our fate is sealed. We're not going anywhere. But we don't know that, and so we're furiously rowing against the wind. And so Jesus comes to them, and his plan was to just walk right by them. 
so that they would call out to him. Right? That's living by faith. We call out to Christ. So he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass right on by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good picture of it right there, huh? It's dark, and they're walking along, and they see Jesus, you know. And the, who is this? This is the creator of all things. We looked at those passages like last week. And the uh, New Testament says over and over that God, Jesus is the part of the Godhead that created all things. So the creator who exists outside of the creation and is not governed by the natural laws of the creation is walking on his creation. And they see him, and naturally, they're not only not expecting this, they've never seen anything like it, nobody can do this, and so they think it's a ghost, some kind of spirit, and they're scared, naturally. They saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were frightened, But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, interesting detail. uh, Your translation says, it is I. In Greek, it's actually, take courage, I am. That's it. What does I am mean to you? I am that I am. That's the name of God used God gave Moses in Exodus 3. Moses said, who shall I say sent me? He says, tell them I am that I am. The name of God, self-existent and eternal in that name, right? So what is he saying here? How did you, they're, they're thinking, how did you walk on the water? How are you going to still this storm? And Jesus simply says, I am. Take courage, don't fear anything because I am that I am. He's giving them the name of God. God's in the boat with you. You don't have to worry about a thing. Right? And he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were astonished. Why were they so astonished? You know, uh, you know the author's basically saying, now that we know what we know about Jesus, when he's writing this, when Mark's writing this, Uh, we wouldn't be so astonished. But then we just had never experienced anything like this and we didn't totally understand who Jesus was and the nature of Jesus so much that when it happened, we were just blown away, astonished. We just couldn't believe it. It was that awesome. Uh, And then he tells you because they weren't ready yet to fully grasp this and understand this, right? Um, So... uh, Mark leaves out, John, uh, Matthew actually has an additional part of this miracle in his account. Uh, and in Matthew, Matthew says that Peter, right before Jesus got in the boat, Peter even said, Simon Peter said, God, let me walk on the water. That look is so cool. And uh, so Jesus says, great. You have the faith to step out of the boat, just come on over. So Peter gets out of the boat, 
looking at Jesus. He's walking on the water. And then what happens? Yeah. He took his eyes off Jesus and he focused on the circumstances of the wind and the waves. And when he took his eyes off Jesus and he focused on the wind and the waves, his circumstances, he began to sink. Now, I don't know how you begin to sink. I would imagine it would be pretty quick, like an anchor or something. But immediately, uh, he prays a prayer. Peter does. And it's a very important prayer. It's one that we need to learn, and we need to use it all the time. And it's just three words. It's very simple. You can't take any of the three words out or it'll lose its meaning. That's it. Lord, save me. What would I do without Jeff? (laughs) Lord, save me. So the, the one you're addressing in your prayer is the Lord. Your request is save, and it's a personal prayer for you. And, of course, Jesus did save him, pulled him in the boat. And uh, we see another lesson of faith and another miracle. As soon as Jesus gets in the boat, not only does the storm stop, but they're there at their destination. They arrived by themselves, rowing against the wind. They're just stuck out in the middle of the storm. Jesus in the boat, they arrive at their destination whole and complete. Let me, let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these wonderful stories and these great miracles that you did, Lord, to teach your disciples the faith. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us see all the storms in our life and all the headwinds that we have, Lord, as nothing more than tests for us to pass through by using the faith that we have, knowing that you're in the boat with us. And because you're in the boat with us, everything is going to be okay. And we praise you, Lord, for our Savior, Jesus, in his name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>